0: This is The Waves. This This is is The the Waves. waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The
1: Waves. This is
0: The Waves. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and the odds and ends left over after Thanksgiving is done. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. Today, you've got me, Rebecca Onion, a staff writer for Slate.
1: And me, Tamar Adler, a writer and contributing editor at Vogue magazine.
0: It's Thanksgiving, the grandest of leftover holidays, and as the media has been telling us for the past couple of weeks, the food for it is more expensive this year than it's been in previous years. With that in mind, we'd like to talk about the way that odds and ends, bits and bobs, end up getting reused in American households and how that reuse relates to gender, both during this holiday that we're celebrating today and beyond. I am obsessed with this question and I am not super, super amazing at reusing like Tamara's, She's like a, a black belt in the practice. I really do enjoy sort of the game of working through everything in the fridge. It feels very tangible to me and very uh, pleasing. So I should say that in my house, I'm, I'm married to a man and I've been with him for 15 years and I have one preschooler. We have definitely specialized where he does all the fixing of objects, and the more long-term money planning, and car maintenance, and actually vacuuming, since he cares more about that. And I do everything with food. Like, he basically lives in a restaurant. I do the planning, the cooking, the end game, everything. I do sometimes wonder, I enjoy all this, but I do sometimes wonder about the degree to which I'm sort of like not seeing the burden of food the way that other people do, which also includes the burden of figuring out what to do with the food once the meal is over, which is... For a lot of women in relationships like mine, I think it does fall to them. And Thanksgiving is a time when this comes into focus. Tamar, I know that you think about this constantly. Um, why, why are you interested in
1: this topic? When I cooked at a Chez Panisse in Berkeley, in the kitchen, we would always joke about how when you're a cook, people like to ask you what your specialty is. And that's not a real thing. That's a made-up thing. But I actually have specialty, and it's leftovers. And I can't believe that. <laughs> But it's true. Like that is I love it's it. it's one word. My elevator pitch is like I cook leftovers. I've thought about why and it's it's not loving cooking leftovers in particular. I've decided that it's like a constellation of psychological tics or idiosyncrasies where it's like I love an underdog more than anything if there's an empty restaurant and a full restaurant and you're supposed to go to the full one because it's obviously good, I want to go to the empty one. I feel like the pain of the empty seats. And then, you know, whatever team is losing, that's my team. And then, I obviously have been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, I'm in therapy. And then I think I have like a hero complex where whatever it is, I think just by my attending to it, I can save it. And then I think it's also like, I don't, I want people to feel like everything is going to be okay at all times. My impulse is like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'm sure I can make that fine. And so when you kind of smush all those things together into like a delicious meatball made of things of many vintages, you get somebody who like is just a leftovers expert.
0: Okay. I love this so much. I can't wait to talk about all this, all this with you. Coming up, we're going to talk about all the different ways that leftover management ends up gendered and whether it does and if we should be talking about it that way. welcome back so in this first segment we're going to talk about how leftovers work in American kitchens and especially how the dynamics around leftovers unfold in houses where there are men and women living together I' am sort of trying to get beyond the anecdotal and thinking about this is I I don't know if my own experience and the experience of my friends is like representative of anything ever. My own experience is that if things in my fridge are rotting, it's me who's going to save them. <laughs> Speaking of tomorrow, your idea of being the one to, to rush into the rescue. And my other experience is that if things are rotting and they need to be put in the compost, I'm the one to put, put them in there. Um, Tamar, what's your experience in your personal household with leftovers?
1: Yours mirrors mine precisely. I'm the one who puts it away. I retrieve it to be repurposed. And if it's past repurposing, I compost it. And if the compost gets full and I haven't brought it down to the compost heap, then stuff has to go in the garbage until I empty the compost. And probably, as in your house, it's not that it's not a shared value. It's a completely shared value in my household, but the responsibility for maintaining that value as it pertains to food is on me.
0: So, let me ask you, does your husband cook? Um. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how much how much do you want to say well, in like, public?
1: Like more? Okay, so then more more it sounds it sounds like he cooks more than yours does. But um, I, think, <laughs> in a, I think in a way that, that relates pretty directly to the question of whether or not sustainable, more sustainable cooking or cooking leftovers becomes a woman's work. He likes to cook a thing that he wants to cook. So he really likes making um, burritos and tacos, but he likes to have the exact ingredients that he wants. So he'll buy canned black beans to make it even if there's another kind of being in the house. So, like, some of that is just anybody's comfort level. You know, I do most of the cooking, and so it makes sense that he sort of wants it to be good and wants to practice. But it still is circumscribed in a way mine, my cooking isn't. Mine is, the you know, as opposite from that as you could get. How about you?
0: I'm sort of like a, um, a traitor to the feminist cause a little bit in having given up so completely. But It has to do with my pleasure around it also to some degree. And I feel like since I was curious about the sort of like the bigger picture of like if there's been any, you know, larger academic work on the question of leftovers, when I looked into it a little bit, I was like, I think the problem is that like at least in my house and maybe in other houses, if some of the stuff that I've been reading is any indication, is that cooking is one thing. And then procuring, it's like cooking is like, as you know, it's like wrapped in so many other Um, activities like uh, planning and procuring and then cleaning up. And then also like what one sociologist that I was reading about leftovers, the only person I could find who wrote specifically about leftovers, um, described it as a divestment practice, which is sort of like a super academic way to describe what ends up happening. But I found actually a little bit useful in trying to think not just about how leftovers work in my house, but also how like giving away like my child's grown out of clothes, like making sure that the hand-me-downs like land in the hands of someone who can actually wear them. That's like another example of a di- divestment practice, which is like kind of like not glamorous, but necessary.
1: <laughs> can you say a little bit more about cooking and all the layers of cooking practice as a divestment?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think I like that what you what you said about values. I think that if you're going into cooking Thinking about it just as, like, at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday, I'm the one who's going to put, like, all the ingredients together and make sure that it makes it to the table. So you wrote a book, An Everlasting Meal, Cooking with Economy and Grace, um, which I always think of as a never-ending meal, but (laughs) it's actually an everlasting meal.
1: Which is really funny because I actually tried to call it A Never-Ending Meal. Because I thought everlasting sounded way too, like, catechetic and religious. But the marketing people at Scribner thought that never-ending sounded either like total drudgery, like you're just sitting there and you're like, oh, my God, will this ever end? Or like a really serious sort of problematic, not funny binge-eating thing where you're just like, can't stop eating. So it's everlasting. Everlasting.
0: Everlasting. I first read it a couple years ago, and it's the most – it's a very unusual – I don't even know if you call it a cookbook. <laughs> I mean, there are recipes in it, but it's it's more about sort of a theory. And the theory is that everything in a kitchen kind of happens in a long chain, like everything is, is locking together, or like all the different ingredients, like one ingredient is leading to the next meal, and the next meal, and the next meal, and the next meal. So when I read this sort of sociology about div- divestment, <laughs> the idea of divestment – it was interesting because even, you know, the articles that I was reading about about leftovers weren't really even getting at it like you were because they're talking about eating leftovers as literally there's like, you know, a Pyrex container in the fridge of Tuesday night's meal. And are you going to have it for Wednesday night's meal? Whereas your your idea is a lot like more complicated, but also maybe, I don't know, intuitive to me, which is like repurposing different ingredients, not just like, I'm having the same meal again and again, but like different parts of the meal are stretching, like from one day to the next to the next to the next.
1: And in the interest of historical accuracy, it is in no way my idea. I mean, I wrote I wrote the book that we're talking about, but my main point then was and, and remains that this is just what cooking is. I sort of articulated it then as an everlasting meal. Now I'm writing a whole book of leftovers. Recipes so that you don't ever start, you don't start with one cup flour, you start with leftover pumpkin pie. This is just, I mean, it's called sometimes cucina povera or peasant cooking, or it's just called cooking. But there has been no point in human history when women who have always cooked all of the food that we have eaten to survive, other than fancy food, high end, you know, haute cuisine women have always used what they had to make the next meal. Um, one of the things
0: that I really liked while reading this these articles about um, leftovers as sociology, so I should probably say that um, the person who wrote the article that I'm rely, relying on and referring to the most is Benedetta Cappellini, who's British. She did a study on leftovers where she looked at middle-class British families. So this is in the, in the 2000s. Um, and so she talked about Leftovers, um, like the act of being the one in the house to eat the leftovers, which um, she found in a couple of households that she looked at, that it was mostly the woman who would do that, especially if it was something that people hadn't really liked. That that was sort of like an act of sacrifice, like kind of like taking a hit for the team (laughs) a little bit. And but there's also the way that she looked at leftover-based meals as like the places where you find out like who's really in the family, like that you wouldn't invite people over to the house to have like a leftovers meal, but you would eat it like in as a family, which was an interesting point. I don't
1: think Benedetta has a ton of experience (laughs) turning leftovers
0: into delicious. Yeah. I know. I mean, that was the thing. It was it was definitely um, framed
1: around the idea that leftovers are subpar. That it's like something Yeah, which I mean I get, but I just think it's worth saying, you know, of course I totally identified with that when you, you know, when you talk about like the mom being the one who does it? You can always picture that moment in yourself where you're just like eating up the, the rest of your kids' thing. Because it doesn't sound like the sociologist had a lot of experience with turning leftovers into other foods, I don't know if she would have addressed this. But my so this is my grand theory that it has a lot to do with texture and with women's monthly and daily experience with viscous fluids and like lifetime seminal experience with viscous fluids and the degree to which as a biological woman who identifies as a woman you can't get away from things that are gooey things that are flowing things that cohere and then don't cohere things that move outside of the boundaries within which you wish they would stay you know like all of these things like the bony the oozy the the jelly these are things that as as women, you cannot, you can't avoid. It's, it's currently impossible. And I just described the textures that you have to be not just willing to, like, look at, but also taste and touch when you are going to make something great out of what's left. And I think that, like, I think that men could get it. I mean, male chefs get it, right? My brother's a chef. He totally, like, he makes head cheese. He poaches you know pig's trotters but but that is because he learned it culinarily i've learned it biologically or in terms of my own you know experience i think that's part of it
0: that's so interesting when it comes to who in my house is more comfortable with things being gross like it's definitely me <laughs> like um um but it but it also has to do with um like it, is it cooking? I mean, I feel like it flows in and out of cooking experience also in a way um, because if you're experienced with the way that food kind of like transforms over time in the fridge from like one thing to another, um, I don't know. Like, I, And I, I, th- I definitely think like over time as I've cooked more and more and become, you know, more and more comfortable with it, I've had enough experiences where I've been like, oh yeah, this is still fine or, you know, or like, oh, I can do this with that to make it, okay. Um, and since my husband doesn't have any of that experience, his experience of food is always like the food that he's eating is on a plate and it's like at its prime, kind of. And he's like a little scared of, as you're saying, exactly. Um, he's like a little scared of it when it comes out of the fridge, if
1: it's been in there for a while. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the two things end up, you know, joining and reinforcing each other, right? Like a maybe a natural... <laughs> A natural, um, if involuntary, comfort with things at different textures ends up maybe giving you a little bit of a leg up when it comes to learning how to sort of deal with these things and look at them and touch them and taste them. But then that ends, it ends up being, you know, reinforced each time you do. And so if you're missing out on all the experiences, uh, it's harder.
0: Do you think that it is uh, like a badge of womanly virtue in American culture in 2021 to be thrifty, like to be good with leftovers, to be good with the amount of money that you spend on groceries and the like, thrivingness of your
1: family. I don't think so. Do you? I wonder. I don't know enough about, um, I think there are too many, there are a lot of different cultures inside of our society I think I'm I'm wondering about it because my impulse as a
0: sometime historian when I'm talking about this question is to think about the way that it used to be seen as sort of like a, a a badge of honor for women to be good at this. And when I say seen as, I mean that like there was a dominant sort of cultural voice, people who took it upon themselves to like preach about what what women should be good at in the kitchen. I'm talking about like people who wrote you know, domestic advice manuals in the in the 19th century or sort of like rational eating advocates in the early 20th century who were like willing to stand up and say, you know, in America, like we eat this way and this is what you should, how much you, be, you should be willing to spend per week on your family's meal. And now I, I wonder if the equivalent is like people on Instagram, like zero waste influencers or people who publicly talk about cooking on Instagram um, or in food media. But, I
1: mean, aren't our most and again, I don't know what, when I say our, I'm qualifying it because I don't know who our is, but aren't our qualified, most public and adored and emulated female figures right now, just conspicuous consumers of all kinds. Like I don't even, I don't even see that much zero waste stuff. I mean, I don't know where I would be seeing it, but like, I know. I definitely notice when you know people are like are at the farmers market and they have like the nice metal, um, s- like silverware set that comes in a hemp bag. I mean, I notice that like that seems to go along with like looking really, you know, pretty fresh for a Saturday morning. But I don't. I don't. I think that the the women that are being emulated in my mind are not thrifty or even necessarily so environmentally um so outwardly environmentally conscious there's a lot of like buying things and driving around and i don't know how that really fits with like only spend you know ten dollars a week on on your family's meal also because we're learning a lot more about our food system and what it actually costs to or would cost to raise food in a way that wasn't externalizing all of the horrible environmental and human costs. You
0: feel like us learning that about the food system is sort of changing the face of thrift
1: in a way? It would have to. Yeah. In the late 1800s, when somebody was writing a, a, a sort of housewife's guide to how you feed a family on a dollar or whatever. We still had, our country still had mostly small and mid-sized family farms. And so buying one whole chicken a week for a certain price was something that could kind of like logically fit together. If you buy the cheapest chicken now, it's coming at the cost of um, the meat packers' lives, the soil life of where it was raised. The food system has changed so extremely from when those uh, housemaker tips were coming out that i think it would just uh, the whole equation would be different
0: we're going to take a break here but if you're enjoying the waves we'd love it if you like and subscribe to the waves wherever you get your podcasts
1: and if you want to hear more from rebecca and myself on another topic check out our waves plus segment is this feminist where today rebecca and i are debating whether it's feminist to cook for your date or to be cooked for on a date
0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America
1: NA, member FDSE.
0: All right, so we've talked around the big picture and we've talked a little bit about sort of woman's responsibility for leftovers ends up being uh, something that, that that gets ingrained in culture a little bit. And all of that being said, I would love to talk some more about specifics when it comes to Thanksgiving leftovers. So I think we all sort of know what to do with like, if you have a turkey carcass and you're, you know, not a vegetarian like me, you would boil it and make a stock. Or, of course, there's the classic, take a roll and put turkey and cranberry jelly in it for the uh, next day turkey sandwich.
1: I think that's one of the great sandwiches.
0: I agree. But I, I wanted to ask you about some of the, like, the less attractive. Friday is, like, easy, kind of, <laughs> You have the, if you had Thanksgiving on Thursday. Um, and then on Friday, it's, like, you just have sort of the Thanksgiving meal again but let's talk about this sort of the dregs, <laughs> the sort of the less attractive leftovers. Let's start with gravy. What would you do if you had a whole bunch of extra gravy?
1: I think it's really important to do a gravy thing as soon as you can after the meal, because like it just once the exact things that you put gravy on on Thursday aren't there, it starts to diminish in appeal super quickly. Um, so what I like to do is turn it into a ragu. Like braise a bunch of a different kind of meat. It's okay you'll use your turkey, but like beef, like slow-cooked beef and use the gravy as some of the of the braising liquid. And then I'd also of course water it down with a little bit of your turkey stock and probably some some wine, like the leftover wine in that one bottle that you find under the, you know, easy lazy boy or whatever and so that it's not like so 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 thick because gravy is started with a roux so it has a little bit of flour in it but if you're making like a really thick like sticky ragu the kind that you'll put on a short fat pasta or on pappardelle or something then it's not a problem to have that kind of richness and you could use a also a meat that is particularly gelatinous and like rich like um like shank or some um or oxtail or shoulder or just something that you know the whole what you're gonna end up with is like a thick wonderful um pasta sauce or polenta sauce and the great thing about that is also you can if you make you know a big pot of it you can freeze a bunch of it for when you're feeling more ragu-ish in a month but I've definitely tried just like freezing the gravy and I don't I don't want to come back to it in gravy form. I think it's really important to just move it along.
0: Yeah, that happened to me last year. I froze the rest of the gravy, or a couple years ago. Uh, I froze the rest it's of the gravy. still there, right? I, yep, it's definitely still there. <laughs> Taking up space in my chest freezer. Okay, um, what about the purees? Like, speaking of texture, these get glutinous. Uh, mashed potatoes, squash, and sweet potatoes. I always make too much sweet potato puree, and then I'm just like, okay, now what?
1: Yeah, There are so many. I think these are another one where um, kind of the faster you transform, the better off you are. So one direction you could totally go is a scone or a biscuit. They could be like if you even without my giving a concrete recipe, I'm actually still developing at least one of these. But if you were just to use sweet potato puree instead of the liquid in a scone recipe, that would work. If you have a scone recipe that calls for a half a cup of milk or cream at the end, you could just use sweet, sweet potato puree. And if it's really sweet, cut down on the sugar. The sugar doesn't do a ton in those in scone recipes. So that's one. Another that's really good, depending on how sweet yours is, is to make it into like a Thai style curry where you or, or soup, or like, like curry flavored soup, where you start with cooking a little bit of curry paste in, like red curry paste, so it's not all brown at the end because like red plus orange is nice but green plus orange is n- not as nice so but you could cook the curry paste down in a little bit of coconut milk and then add um, your puree and coconut milk and then and then you you know you could add some shrimp or some fish and make it into like a rip, and make it you know, really really spicy really really different from your thanksgiving meal if your thanksgiving meal wasn't spicy put in a lot of thai basil something like that
0: can you freeze like portions of the purees? I mean, I know I've tried freezing mashed yeah. potatoes before and that worked out okay. Actually. No,
1: no, no, yeah. not mashed potatoes. Oh, no, sweet potatoes. Okay. So, well, I've never had, I, I don't feel like, I think potatoes don't freeze very well.
0: I think I froze it and then put them in a mashed potato bread and maybe that was why it was okay. I wasn't expecting to like enjoy a mashed potato from it. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> go on.
1: Yeah, right. So I'm sure that could, you, could, you could keep some of their qualities, like whatever would be good in bread or in buns or, you know, something like that. Um, but I also really like like vichyssoise a lot when you put them through a a, um, a food mill if you need to and then add like milk and cream or you could do the same thing and add some clams and have like a really wonderful clam chowder, clam potato chowder. Or I really like also, you know, just like spreading them out and making them, spreading them out into a gratin, making them even a little richer, like putting on a bunch of Shredded cheese and breadcrumbs and baking it. Oh yeah. I like that.
0: What about when you're cleaning up the Thanksgiving table and there's the salad bowl that has like a bunch of sort of gloppy limp leaves at the bottom of it?
1: What would you do with that? Well, I not I I love that. I would probably eat it unless it were really late. If it were like up to half an hour before bedtime, I would I would eat it. But I've also had very good experiences just storing it as it is. And then the next day, kind of like wringing it out a little and then chopping it finely and putting it in um, a cornmeal pancake batter and making like little fritters. And it ends up just being like kind of nice, bright green or whatever flavor. Like it doesn't even matter. Just chop it up small, ring it, chop it up small, and put it in cornmeal pancakes and make savory pancakes. Oh, I love that. Uh huh. You know what I've also done? I don't remember the exact exactly what I did I mean it's in my next book but I've pureed it and then it's been this like amazing rich green thing that I've used to make other like a like a sauce starter like a but like I've used it to make um a, this like super bright green um, mayonnaise and I actually served to the point of whether or not you serve people outside of your family um leftovers I had just made this like just pureed. It was literally pureed salad. But I liked the taste so much that I I made a vinaigrette with it, and I brought it over to a writer's house up here, and served it to like you know twenty five people during the summer, all outside, and everybody was like, oh, this vinaigrette's so good. And it was literally started with my pureed old salad. What about speaking of the
0: sweet potatoes question? Um, this question of the sweet potato marshmallow casserole. Um, which ends up at my Thanksgiving, not to my own, not by my own hands, maybe, um, and which I like a couple scoops of, but which ends up being super sweet. Um, Have you ever
1: had to repurpose one of those? You know, I haven't, but I should. It made me realize I really should for the book. What I would do, just thinking about it now, is I would take off the the marshmallows and use them to make um, Rice Krispie Treats. You know, where you melt them and then it would just be like, it would be like pumpkin spice Rice Krispie treats. And then use the, the puree to make muffins or scones or like you can make pumpkin bread, you know, like it can make any anything that you would make with pumpkin puree or even like banana bread, any kind of smushed up sweet thing you can make with that casserole. And maybe reduce the amount of sugar
0: by your own yes. judgment. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. I have one last one. What about the end of the cranberry jelly? So we get the kind in a can. We also, I also make the kind that's, to me, more delicious, which is like the cooked down actual cranberries. But uh, my husband really likes the kind in a can. Um, and we usually end up with about half of it left. What would you do with that?
1: Do you do it in can form or do you warm it up?
0: Um, he just like wants sliced? it in a
1: can. Literally, it's just like,
0: <laughs> the, you know, he wants to see the, the ridges on the, from the can in the yeah so yeah so usually it's yeah usually it's uh about you know a half a a solid chunk of a half a can of uh, cranberry jelly
1: i have had great success turning that into thumbprint cookies and thumbprint cookies are great because they're like they kind of like expand out a little bit anyway they're made for a little well of something they're you know it doesn't really matter what's what's in the middle of them you can do the same thing with leftover lemon curd or really any jam the thumbprint cookie is not really about the thing what the thing in the middle is it's kind of like the contrast between jelly thing in the middle and you know soft but slightly crisp butter cookie around so i made cranberry jelly butter cookies they were great
0: that sounds delicious does the so does the cranberry jelly the texture is okay because it's a little bit less um i don't know it's a little different it's more quivery then, like oh, it a doesn't strawberry matter. jam, doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, okay. <It> matter.
1: <laughs> I mean, so I don't think it matters. Yeah, right.
0: What are your um? What do your did your husband and son like know uh, when you're when you're eating sort of repurposed stuff? Do they know what what it's coming? Like, do you talk to them about it?
1: And what do they think about it? My husband always knows. My son is in a his his the things that he actually will consume have winnowed to such a small number that I just don't think about it. Like, we often have rice or bread with dinner. And so with him, it wouldn't matter whether it were leftover or freshly made. If it's not currently, if it's not one of, like, four things that include rice and bread, he's as uninterested. I see. How old is he? Five.
0: Ah, see. Yeah, I almost have. I have an almost five-year-old, and the winnowing has been very real (laughs)
1: It's real. Yeah. I don't it doesn't really bother me that much, but um maybe that's not true. Maybe it really bothers me and I'm just not uh in touch with it.
0: <laughs> it only bothers me in public, I got to be honest. It doesn't bother me in private. But <laughs> Oh yeah, it's embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. And I bet probably even for you, you sort of li- seems like you uh maybe live in a world of people who really care
1: about food. Yeah. I mean, people definitely expect him to be like super good at eating and are surprised when he isn't
0: I really think that it, what you eat when you're five is not what you eat when you're 15 or 20 I have faith me too so before we head out we want to talk about some recommendations Tamar, what are you loving right now in life that you could recommend our listeners try
1: the first one's going to sound really lame and kind of gendered, so I just want to say that. But I'm a lifelong inveterate slob, like uh, where, like my husband when he met me couldn't understand why there was always a pile of clean clothes in the middle of my bedroom. Um, but my thinking was like, I'm going to have to put them back on anyway, so why not just leave them there where I can see them all? But I'm, but then it also recently has really been stressing me out to just have stuff. Absolutely. Everywhere. And I'm right now trying to accept that I don't have to, if I am going to do sort of organizing and sifting through things, it doesn't have to be in the margins of my day, which is I think why I don't do it. It can be my, that can be the work that I've done. Like it's, it is as important that I be able to find the, you know, the book I'm looking for as it is that I look at the book I'm looking for. So, I mean, it sounds ridiculous on a show about feminism to say I'm trying to make cleaning part of my work, but I am. And then my other, my other one is equally ridiculous. But I have a um, a Peloton, which is like a stationary bike with, that comes with a cult attached. Yes, it um, does. <laughs> instead of instead of um, participating in the cult activity, this is not out of some like philosophical objection. This is because I just it's just what I prefer. If I'm going to spend like. 45 minutes looking at a screen I really want it to be like a stream a, a movie or a streaming service or something that I want to watch so my so what I do is I get on the get on the Peloton and then put on a class but it's on mute so I can see there's a little number they tell me I'm supposed to be like you know at 40 or whatever but then on my phone I just watch like some French like murder mystery or something like that
0: nice how about you I feel a kinship with you because I do the same thing. I don't have a Peloton, but I do it with like YouTube uh, fitness classes. I listen to podcasts. Oh my God. I need to be distracted while I'm doing that stuff. Right. <laughs> Unless I'm like physically in a class. Like when I, when my child gets a vaccine, I'll go back to CrossFit. And then I will obviously not like listen to a podcast while I'm at CrossFit.
1: But you might miss um,
0: it. I know I do actually. I mean, cause I, yeah, whatever. It makes it, it makes it so much more bearable to me. Um, but my recommendation is one that I, I was gonna write about for Slate, and I still might write about it, but if I have time. But um, I read a tip on the internet uh, recommending mowing your leaves instead of raking them. So in our city, we have, um, you know, a service where the people go you know, people go around with the big street sweepers and 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 sweep up the leaves, and you know, it periodically happens throughout the fall. And I'm the one who's in charge of somehow have become in charge of raking the leaves, and I really hate it. Even though I have a pretty small lawn, um, it's sort of an irritating task. So when I read this article that said, you know, you can mow your leaves with a lawn mower, and that's actually kind of good for the lawn because then it leaves like a fine layer of mulch on your lawn that sort of like you know creates like a, a compost situation um, for the for the lawn over the winter. Um, I said, okay, I think that's what I'm going to try to do. So I tried to do it and it actually worked pretty well to mow the leaves. Although I have sort of a small and ineffective lawnmower, but it looks kind of like crap. Like it's like, it's basically looks like a lawn with a, like a brown sort of brown underlayer. but I kind of don't care.
1: Yeah. It's not going to look like crap when it's all healthy and happy in the spring.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it was easier than raking. <laughs> So that's my my creative tip. Now, if you live in a neighborhood where people care what your lawn looks like a lot, you may not want to do it. But my neighborhood is pretty loosey-goosey. So I decided to just do it. Well, that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth.
1: Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas, providing oversight and moral support.
0: If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits, like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus content of shows like this one. It's only a dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash plus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Ways will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place.